So Zach mentioned we are beginning this new series on the Sermon on the Mount, which, record, which is recorded over Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew's Gospel, at the end of chapter 4, there is a sentence, and it says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then again, at the end of chapter 9, a very similar sentence appears. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, the gospel writers would do things like this on purpose, in order to emphasize something, in order to point something out to the listeners. And so Matthew repeats this statement, Jesus went out teaching, preaching, and healing. In those two places, he's doing that so he can show us something. He's showing us that everything in between these two bookend statements, that Jesus went out teaching, preaching, and healing, is a catalog of that teaching, preaching, and healing ministry. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, record the teaching and preaching of the kingdom. Chapters 8 and 9 are the healings, the miracles. He even brings a little girl back from the dead. And so I think Matthew isn't just giving us a record of what Jesus has said and done. Matthew is making an argument here, and he's already prepared us to receive the understanding that Jesus is remarkable. In the the previous four chapters, we've seen his genealogy, his advent, his baptism, his temptation, his works. And so we're ready to receive him as remarkable. So Matthew's making this argument. He's saying, listen, this this man is unique. This man is different. This This man is extraordinary. He's not just another teacher or preacher or miracle worker. This man is the king. So we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, what are known as the Beatitudes, which are the prelude to the Sermon on the Mount. And if Jesus is who Matthew is suggesting to us, if Jesus is who he said he was, then chapter 5 hits something of a climactic note here, because this then is not just an ordinary sermon. This isn't even an extraordinary sermon. This is nothing less than the inaugural address of the king. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It should also be in your bulletins if you want to read along. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophet, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. So why does Matthew take such care to prepare us for this moment? I think it's because who Jesus is, Christology, if you want to use a seminary word, who Jesus is, is key to us understanding what it is that Jesus teaches. I've talked before about having rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disorder, and I'm doing this diet right now uh, at the suggestion of my doctor called the Autoimmune Protocol, AIP for short. And AIP is basically Whole30 uh, minus any of the bits that you would like to eat. And so you can't, have, you can't have beans, you can't have nuts, you can't have nightshades, which, contrary to my first guess, are not the poison berries that Katniss tried to give to PETA at the end of Hunger Games. Um, nightshades are, are a class of vegetable that includes uh, tomatoes and, and uh, veggie peppers and, and spice peppers, so no cayenne, no, no pepper on my eggs, but hey, that's okay because I can't have eggs. 
It would really ruin breakfast if I, could have, if I couldn't have coffee. Oh, wait, I can't have coffee because that comes from a bean, and beans are the devil. So all of this is supposed to help me... Um, it's supposed to help determine if I have food sensitivities that are aggravating my arthritis, and it's also supposed to help decrease my intestinal permeability, which means that little bits of inflammatory food particles won't leak from my gut into my bloodstream, which is more colloquially known as leaky gut. Now, the first time... <laughs> that I heard about leaky gut, I didn't think anything of it because the person who told me about it, we'll call her Shelly, uh, I didn't think anything of it because Shelly also swore that putting butter in her coffee kept her from getting colds and, and when I had food poisoning, she recommended that I rub lavender oil on my kneecaps. So, <laughs> Shelly sits on a throne of lies. I'm, I'm not anti the oils, I love the oils, I love the oil people, don't judge me Christians. I'm just saying that if you know, your heads come off, we can probably skip the peppermint and go straight to the urgent care. So I didn't think anything of this because, you know, Shelly was not an authority for me on autoimmune disease and treatment. But when my rheumatologist a couple of weeks ago mentioned increased intestinal permeability, when she mentioned that my microbiome, which are your gut germs, could play a role in mitigating or exacerbating my symptoms, I, I perked right up and I listened. And I thought, fair play to Shelly. I'll try lavender next time I vomit. My point is that what's, what's being said is not always as important as who it is that's saying it. What's being said doesn't matter if the person saying it doesn't have authority. So if Jesus is the king, then he has the authority to proclaim what his kingdom will be like. He has the authority to proclaim who is in and who is out, and no one else besides the king has the authority to make that proclamation. The Sermon on the Mount is challenging for everyone to understand, for everyone to accept. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you will find something in here that you don't like. You'll find something in here that, that, that you're failing at. You'll find something in here that you're not even sure you're actually capable of doing. So if, if we look at the sermon as nothing more than a list of good things we ought to do, if it's just a catalog of virtues that we try to practice in order to please God, but we don't reckon with the deity of Jesus Christ himself, then we will miss both the call and the gift of his kingdom. In rabbinic tradition, teachers would have quoted their own rabbis and sources to, to, to lend credence to what it was they were teaching. At the end of Matthew 7, it says the crowds were amazed at Jesus because he didn't do this. Jesus didn't quote anybody. He, he, he was the authority. He spoke with authority, like the final authority. And, and so the most important question that his listeners would have had to reckon with is, who does this guy think he is? Everyone who heard the sermon, everyone who, who wanted to understand who was in God's kingdom and what those in God's kingdom were supposed to do would, would first have to decide, is this, guy, is this guy allowed to tell me that? Does he have the right to tell me those things or not? Of all the challenges that the Sermon on the Mount offers us, I think this is the most significant. This is the most significant. Who do you think this guy is? Because the answer to that question will, will color every other part of your entire life. So let's talk about the Beatitudes. We're gonna talk about what they are and what they're not. First, what they are, they are a description. This is a description of what God's kingdom will look like. He's saying, if you look at my kingdom, you will see people who are poor, meek, and mourning. But it's not just a description, it's also a pronouncement. Jesus pronounces, he enacts blessings upon these people groups that he describes. Now again, this is why it's important that he has authority. Because when a judge in a court of law taps the gavel and says the word guilty, he's not just describing the accused, he's pronouncing a judgment on them. 
And, he, and because he's the judge, he has the authority to do so. His words don't only inform, they also influence the outcome. Something happens as a result of what he says. When I was in labor with Ember, uh, we ended up in an emergency C-section because her heart rate had started to drop, so they sent me into surgery. And I didn't realize that when they give you that, that shot into your spine that it makes you numb from like your neck all the way down to your toes. I thought it was like just a waist down thing, I guess. I don't know why, but, but it makes you numb from the neck down. And they don't really prepare you for that because it happens so fast. An emergency C-section is really fast. I mean, you've been there for 18 hours and just nothing is happening except every few minutes you're, you just want to murder your husband for doing this to you. But, but nothing is actually happening. And then, but then as soon as they say it's time for the C-section, it's like 15 minutes later and bam, you're holding a baby. So, so Rob's sitting next to me during the surgery and, and, and he asked me, he's holding my hand, he asked me how I'm doing. Um, and, and because of the numbness that came all the way up to my neck... I couldn't really feel the sensation of my lungs breathing in and breathing out. And so I look over at Rob in kind of the fog of my anesthesia and I say, uh, I don't think I can breathe actually. And so my husband, who's 6'5", jumps up out of his chair. I love him so much. He jumps up. Now mind you, there are like four doctors within a foot of me. He jumps up and he's like, stop the surgery. Stop the surgery, she can't breathe. My doctor, who I also love and is from New York, is like, sit down. <laughs> you see that screen, that's her oxygen level. You watch that, just sit down. Now, my poor husband, to my poor husband, the words, my words, I can't breathe, were more than just a description. Something had to happen as a result of me saying them. When Jesus pronounces these blessings, it's not just a description. Something happens as a result. Each, each beatitude begins with the word blessed, but, but the Greek word there is more of an action word. So, so we would better understand them if, if we read it as blessings on, or God's favor is on. Again, it's not just a description, it's a transaction. Something happens to these people as a result of what Jesus says because of the authority Jesus has. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Does that mean then that if I want to receive God's blessing, if I want to get into his kingdom, that I have to become more meek? or more poor, or more mournful. And isn't that a contradiction of sola fide, justification by grace through faith alone? So we also have to talk about what the Beatitudes are not. They are not just a catalog of how we must try to live in order to live in God's kingdom. Now, I say not just a catalog because there is exhortation here. There is instruction on how to live within Jesus' blessings, and we're going to come back to that later in the sermon. But, but if it were only that, if it were just that, simply that, and nothing else, just a list of to-dos, then I fear that all of us would unfortunately be excluded from the kingdom of God. So we have to remember, we have to remember that, that the, the, the Beatitudes are first and foremost gifts. They're blessings, that's what the word beatitude means. It means blessing. So we're going to look at them individually to better understand this kingdom that Jesus is describing. I looked at three different commentaries for this, and, and all three of them break the beatitudes down differently. Uh, scholars seem to have a hard time agreeing on a proper outline for these blessings. So I tell you that up front just in case if you're a student of the scriptures and you would break them down differently, uh, I am not telling you you're wrong. I think that the Holy Spirit can inspire wisdom and truth from these 12 verses no matter what architecture that we impose on them externally. But my favorite of the organizations uh, came from a, a, a scholar named Bruner, and so I'm going to use his groupings, but I'm going to name them a little bit different than differently than he does. So we're going to look at these blessings, these beatitudes, in, in three groups that I'm, that I'm going to call the blessings of grace, the blessings of love, 
and the blessings of struggle. And I'll explain wh why they're going to be grouped like that. But first, right off the bat, I want to point out that the promise, the reward of the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, and the eighth beatitude, blessed are those persecuted, are both in the present tense. They're both in the present tense. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. All the other blessings are in the future tense. But these two are in the present. And, and of course, they also have the same reward. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. So again, we have this repetition of a statement. We have the repetition of a statement, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think in the same way that Matthew uses this device, Jesus uses it also. So the statement appears twice, theirs is the kingdom of heaven in, in one and eight. And so everything in between these bookend statements is a description of what the kingdom of heaven will look like, what, how we can recognize it in the present, how to usher it in. I think the first beatitude is key to understanding the rest. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke also records a, a version of the Beatitudes, and he simply says, blessed are the poor. And both Matthew and Luke use the same Greek word here for the word poor, pitohos. And this word is rooted in socioeconomics, and I love this because it, it, it helps us to fend off the temptation to over-spiritualize or over-individualize the Beatitudes. They're, they're, they're not just about us. They're not just about us. These were blessings of Jesus on specific people groups that already existed, not, not, not on us individually if we can just get poor enough. They, he was blessing the poor that already existed. But the addition of in spirit in the Matthew account demands that it be read as more than only economic poverty. So, so, so it covers both. This can certainly describe the Anawim, the righteous poor, but it also, it also describes anyone who is not just physically, but emotionally and relationally desperate. We can remember in Luke 18, it, it, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector whose face is cast down, who's begging forgiveness for being a sinner. It's the task, tax collector that we're told leaves in right relationship with God that day. And listen, the tax collector isn't, isn't leaving in right relationship. He's not forgiven because he thinks he's a sinner, but he's not really. He's kind of mistaken. He's just really a good guy. He, he, he leaves in right relationship with God after his confession, but he really was sinning. He really was sinning. My, my daughter, a couple of nights ago, it's about 30 minutes before bedtime, she says, Mommy, can we watch Barbie uh, po Princess Popstar before bed, which is a real movie on Netflix, and I've seen it so many times. Um, and <laughs> it's like an hour and 15, so I say, hey, baby, listen, uh, that movie's too long, so you can only watch half of it, okay? And she's like, okay, Mommy. So I fast forward through the first half of the movie, uh, and we start it in the middle, which is strategic, so that there's not weeping and gnashing of teeth when I want to turn it off in the middle. Half an hour later, the movie ends, and then Ember, when she snaps out of her screen trance, looks at me and just starts sobbing uncontrollably. And I'm like, babe, babe, what's the matter? And she goes, mommy, I disobeyed you because I watched the whole movie. She thought she'd watched the whole movie just because she'd watched the end of the movie. And I was like, no. I also was like, why is this the one time that she's concerned about disobeying me also? But that's, that's an aside. But, but I didn't want her to be so upset. The poor thing was so guilt-stricken. She's sobbing on the couch. And so I'm like, no, no, babe, you didn't, you didn't disobey me. Remember, I, I fast-forwarded through the first half, so you only watched the second half. But that's like a mathematical concept that she, couldn't, she just couldn't grasp. So she was a mess thinking that she did something terribly wrong, but she didn't. There was nothing to forgive because there had been no sin. That's not what's happening with the tax collector here. This isn't just an innocent man who feels terribly guilty. He's, he's not mistaken. He, 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 he asks for forgiveness because he was guilty. The poor in spirit are those who, who feel like failures because they are actually failing. They feel inadequate because they 
are actually inadequate. And every command in the sermon, which, which describes what, what God's kingdom looks like and, and how one should live in it, every command points us back to this first blessing because we all fail at commands. We all fail. None of us are good enough to be good enough for God. We all fall short. If, if we were capable of never failing, then we wouldn't have needed a savior in the first place. Brunner calls the poor in spirit the people who fail and who feel this failure deeply. And Jesus calls them blessed. Jesus blesses those who know that without his help they are truly helpless, and that includes the physically and the emotionally and the the relationally bereft. Jesus blesses those who are blessed by no one and nothing else. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next three blessings, blessings on those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessings on the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessings on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. To the original audience, those who mourn would almost certainly have referred to those who are mourning over the condition of Israel, because they, they've been scattered, they've come under imperial control, they are living this otherwise miserable existence, which they confess they themselves have contributed to by straying from God's command. So, so the mourning suggested in this beatitude isn't simply an individualistic mourning for, for, for one's own sins, but mourning over, over the broken condition of the whole world. And that certainly includes our own sin and tragedy, but, but, but a citizen of the kingdom of God will mourn over not only their own tragedy, but the tragedy of their child, the tragedy of their friend, the tragedy of their neighbor, even the neighbors that they find it incredibly hard to love. Blessings on those who mourn, for they will be comforted in the future. Remember, this is, these are now the future promises of the kingdom. Blessings on the meek. In this context, the meek are, are the powerless in the world the people who cannot make any claims for themselves on God nor on men. And to the original audience, um, this, this, this powerlessness was not likely a voluntary powerlessness. So this isn't like a monastery vow. These are, these are men and women who, who have no power, uh, and they didn't forfeit it for God's sake. They, they, they never had a shot at power to begin with. These are widows and orphans and the poor who have no influence to change their plight. What, a, what an irony their promise is from Jesus. You will inherit the earth. Blessings on the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessings on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. St. Teresa of Avila once famously prayed, Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you. But I want to want to love you. The hungry and thirsty for righteousness are blessed by Jesus, you understand, not not for an achieved righteousness, but for a desired one. They are not righteous, and they feel the gap. And not only do they feel the gap between their own righteousness and God, but they, like the mourners, also feel the gap between human existence and God. They, 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 they are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, not only in their own lives, but in the lives of everyone that they've ever met. They're hungry for what Bruner calls a terribly missed justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Parenthetically, this is, this is why it's important to note the tenses. These last three promises are all in, in, in the future. The, they're promises of the kingdom that comes. And if, if we succumb to the temptation to make these future promises present tense, then we narrow the field of who we can call blessed. We make it only those people who we can recognize are privileged now in the present. 
And that puts us at risk of, of maybe judging or, or trying to see and decide who's in God's kingdom and who's out based on someone's present circumstances, which is a thing that, that God tells us we can never do. We hear it from Jesus. It's all over the book of Job. That's why we have to reckon with who Jesus is. Because the only person qualified to say who's in the kingdom is the king himself. We don't have the authority. We shouldn't try to take that authority on ourselves to make that determination. So these first four blessings on the poor, the mourning, the meek, and the hungry, these are what we're calling the blessings of grace. And we're calling them this because every single one of these blessings begins with a person who has nothing to offer but need. Nothing to offer but need. One of the last times that I attended CrossFit, I had this really bizarre thing happen to one of my arms. We were doing a workout, and after the workout, I went to wipe the sweat from my face, but my arm wouldn't move. And it wasn't broken, it didn't hurt, it just it was dead, it was not moving. And they, they call this muscle fatigue, but I think that's a misleading name because uh, it, it wasn't just tired, it just wasn't, it was frozen, like dead. Um, nothing was happening with it. Now, I'm not a particularly enthusiastic exerciser, so the only reason this happened was because occasionally at CrossFit they do this thing where there's uh, like a set exercise, a set like set that we all have to do, and everyone's trying to get the best time. And as people finish working out, they're supposed to go and encourage the people who are still working out. So, so, so follow my logic. What that means, logistically, is that, that at some point, there will only be one person working out and about 20 people around them encouraging them. And that person is always me, okay? And, and my husband hates this. My husband hates this too, and he goes to CrossFit. He's much better at it than I am. He, he describes that as, as the time when the trainers say, okay, bring it in class. Let's all gather around and watch the slowest person lose. So anyway, I overdid it that day because there was a crowd of people watching me lose. And, and as a result, uh, I had this, this dead arm thing happen. Like I just couldn't move my arm. So during that evening, I, I, was, I found myself helpless. I found myself helpless to do really ordinary things like, like cook and dress myself, which is kind of humiliating. Like I had, come, I had to come back to, from class and say, Rob, I need you to help me undress myself. And he was like, yes. And I was like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I just can't move my arm. I can't move it. Oh. I tried everything to get it to move in. Ice bath, heating pad, you know, rubbing it. Nothing, nothing I could do was helping the situation. I could do nothing but wait and hope. Each of these people, the meek, the poor, the mourning, the hungry, are in situations that cannot be altered or overcome by the person in the situation. These are not the people who just need to work a little harder, just dig a little deeper, just count a few more blessings. These are the people who are born into slums. These are the people who are illiterate for generations. These are people who, even if, even if they could read, can't go to school because if they don't work all day, they don't eat but it's also all of us. It's also all of us because no matter how hard we work, we are never going to be able to close the gap between our sin and God's holiness. These four blessings are for the people who, apart from God's direct and divine gift of grace, are truly, truly helpless. One of the things that all four of the commentaries pointed out that I thought was really helpful was this. In these first four blessings, Jesus is not blessing people with good dispositions. He's blessing people in bad situations. Not because they're good, but because he's good, because he wants to do it. And now, I, I, I want to be very careful here because I am not suggesting that salvation is universal. 
Jesus tells us very plainly that no one comes to the Father except through him. The only way we are saved is through receiving Jesus Christ. But we should also notice that these first four Beatitudes are unqualified. It does not say, blessed is the poor Christian. Blessed is the meek Christian. He doesn't even directly address the disciples until the ninth Beatitude, or 8b if you want. Blessed are you, instead of blessed are they. So while no one comes to God except through Jesus, there is a universality in Jesus' tenderness toward people who are desperate and who have no way out. And so we can continue to wrestle with what that means in terms of salvation, but what I am certain it means is this, is that we who serve as his ambassadors on earth, we would be wise to adopt that tenderness as well. So these first four are the blessings of grace. It is where every single one of us begins. We all begin from a place of need because none of us are good enough to be good enough for God and yet Jesus blesses us anyway. So we move out of these blessings of grace into the next three, which I've labeled the blessings of love. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, we've turned a corner here because those first four blessings were blessings that people simply received because of their condition. God doesn't want us to work to be more poor or powerless. He's simply blessing people who already have that condition. But these next three blessings are pronounced for conditions that we actually exercise some influence over. We can certainly show mercy. We can certainly pursue purity. We can seek to bring peace. And in fact, I would argue that the, that the rest of the, of the sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7, actually give us instruction on how to do these three things better, particularly how to be a peacemaker. Because the peace of Scripture is, is more than just an inner serenity, a feeling. It's, it's more than even just the outward absence of war. This is, this is shalom peace, wholeness fullness, being in right relationship with God and with men, not just you, but the entire community. This is Garden of Eden peace. And it's a peace that we have to make. It doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. It said, blessed are the peacemakers. These are the people who are going out and actively reconciling relationships and actively bringing justice to all of God's people. And the rest of the sermon says a lot about how we do those things. Now, is this salvation by works? Is this contradicting what Zach is always up here telling us, that it's all about grace? I don't think so, but here's the reality, guys. We can't get around the fact that the Bible teaches both. It absolutely teaches salvation by grace alone, but it also teaches that works of love are evidence of faith at Christ's last judgment. Even Paul, who, who flies high the banner of justification by faith, even Paul teaches both in Romans 2 and Romans 10. Listen to Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, listen, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Bruner writes, the Beatitudes confront us with the question of whether we take seriously the connection of the promise of salvation with an actively lived Christian life. So I've called these the love blessings and not the works blessings because no, no, doing these doesn't get us into the kingdom, but for those who have already been invited graciously 
These actions demonstrate an overflow of the love and the gratitude we feel for that undeserved invitation. I was listening to this fascinating podcast recently about the ghost armies of World War II. After the U.S. troops landed in June of 1944 um, in Normandy, the, the, the troops began to push the German army back across France. And, and by September, they'd pushed them all the way to the Luxembourg border. But because they had been pushing so fast, gaps began to open up in the line. And the Germans were desperate at this point to break the line. And one of these gaps that opened up was, was big. It was about 70 miles long because Patton's troops got, got uh, stalled at a river. And if the Germans had cut through that gap, they could have flanked the army. They could have turned the tide of the entire war. So, so a special unit was deployed to this gap of about 1,100 men. And their job, this is a true story, their job was to pretend to be the 20,000 troops of the 6th Armored Division. And to do this, they had inflatable tanks, inflatable tanks, rubber guns, and an elaborate sound system with lots and lots of speakers that played these pre-recorded noises of artillery being driven along and, and, and of, of troops marching and even like real specific things like a fellow asking his friend for a cigarette. And when the townspeople heard these noises and they saw, you know, the inflated tanks, they spread the word and the Germans held back. But, but one night, they... They would, they would change the set, so to speak, at night, so people wouldn't see them moving things around. One night, a couple of guys stumbled on one of the troops, and behind him, they see these two, four American soldiers lifting up a tank on their shoulders to reposition it. And, 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 and the, 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 the soldier who's there, who wants to get rid of them because he's afraid they're gonna find out, is trying to scare them away, but, but he sees they're not looking at him. They're looking past him at these four average-looking men you know, lifting up this multi-ton piece of artillery. And so when they finally stopped gawking and they finally like, registered this, this soldier who was in front of them, the soldier, hoping to preserve the secret, changes his strategy and he, he beckons them in close. And he leans forward and he whispers, the Americans are very strong. <laughs> and it worked. Miraculously, it worked. They, they held the line. The sights and the sounds were enough to, to profess a genuine army. But if they had been pressed for a minute, if they had been pressed for a minute, the, the rubber guns and the inflatable tanks would surely have crumbled under an enemy who would utterly destroy their fake battalion because their strength was not genuine. Jesus wants faith and love. And yes, only faith justifies and gives victory over the enemy, but only love proves faith to be genuine. I wish that we could end there, kind of, because the next section is a real downer. And this is coming from a sermon that's already covered poverty, mourning, and hunger. But, but there are two more beatitudes that we have to reckon with as well, which I've called the blessings of struggle. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is a cycle, I think, that these nine blessings take us through, and it begins with grace. We see and we feel our need. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Only God's intervention can save us, which moves us to love. We express gratitude for our salvation through the prompting of the Holy Spirit toward love and good deeds, and love, more often than we'd like to admit, usually means struggle. 
when we show mercy to someone and it costs us dearly, when we try to become reconcilers of relationships and both parties resent us for it, when we try to live pure, uh, when we try to do what God has commanded us to do and other people who are near to us feel judged even though we're not judging them, when we love as God intended, we will be met with opposition because evil does not want to be reconciled. And it will beat us up as much as it possibly can while we make the attempt. And I know that sounds a bit depressing, and you're like, great, my reward for, for, for doing God's will is to be persecuted. Is there a second option? But listen, don't misunderstand me. The, the reward is not to be persecuted. The reward is not persecution. The reward for, for receiving God's grace and being moved to deeds of love is not persecution. Persecution is the enemy's attempt to undo that grace and smother that love before anybody else gets infected with it. Persecution isn't the reward. Persecution is the enemy trying to break us off from the reward. The reward is that we get to live in God's kingdom. There is a room for us in the kingdom of God. The persecution, persecution is just the long drive home. And as we struggle through this opposition, we inevitably become aware of our need and our inadequacy to, to love as God has called us to do, and that drives us back to a poverty of spirit which Jesus blesses again and again, and on and on we cycle. I feel like we're all looking for this elusive and mysterious season of life when, you know, when the job you get up and go to every day is like challenging but fun and, uh, you know, your kids are doing well and, and you have somebody to love and, and you're not afraid of the bills that come into your mailbox. But because you haven't yet experienced this mysterious season, you're like, God, am I doing something wrong here? God, am I doing, am I doing something wrong that the pieces just won't fall into place? Listen, it may be that you're doing something right. And I'm not saying that we don't pay attention to the Spirit or Sabbath or use wisdom or ask for help. I'm just saying that the opposition that we meet isn't necessarily an indication that we're doing something wrong. And how would we live if we were no longer striving for comfort and ease, but rather mercy, purity, wholeness, not simply for ourselves, but for everyone we will ever lock eyes with, the measuring stick of success, I think, would be a lot different. And that is not salvation by works. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. We must try. But if we try, and yet we fail, and we're hiding out in the bathroom feeling like a monster because, you know, you left the sweetest little face in tears, and if tomorrow's the first morning of your new plan to get up early and read scripture and pray, but tomorrow's been the first morning for about the last six months. And if you're leaving his house in the early dark morning hours because you don't want anyone to know, and if, and if you can barely muster the energy to get out of bed and the shame is closing in and you hear the accusations, monster, lazy, useless, slut, just, just remember that when you try and you fail and you feel that failure and it leaves you poor in spirit, then blessings on you, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your blessings of grace. Thank you that when our poverty, whether that's physical, spiritual, relational, is more than we can overcome, thank you that you don't leave us in it. 
Thank you that none of us are so poor as to be beyond the reach of your grace. Thank you for your blessings of love. Thank you that you invite us to be bringers of your kingdom, even though we have nothing to offer you. Thank you that you take all of our nothing and make it into something, and something beautiful. Thank you for the hope that you offer us when we experience the struggle that loving other people will always bring. Don't let us forget what we're fighting for. Lord, give us patience to endure, give us tenderness to love, and remind us always that the place we're headed is worth all the troubles of the journey. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.